You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. And amen. Thank you so much, worship team. Bethel, you guys can be seated and you can be turning in your Bibles to the book of Mark. And so we are starting a new sermon series today. I'm so excited. We're going to spend this spring looking at the Gospel of Mark. And it's a great book. Uh, It's a powerful book. It's a fascinating book. It's really unlike any of the other Gospels. And part of what makes the books of Mark so interesting is kind of its background, its author. So we know actually quite a lot about John Mark, the Mark guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Um, and it's a, he's an interesting guy. I tell you what, he's a guy that I can identify a lot with. He's a guy who followed Christ for a long time. I've been following Christ for a little while now, and he had a lot of ups and a lot of downs, and I'm sure many of you can identify with that. Uh, he came, we know that Mark came to Christ early in his life. We know he was cousin to Barnabas, so you, we read about Barnabas in Acts and many of the epistles. We know he ended up being the personal aide to Peter, uh, and of course, he's a gospel writer. Uh, we even know that the early church in Jerusalem most likely first met in his home. But we also know about Mark. He was no superhero. Uh, we have evidence that at times he was immature. We know at least one point he was unreliable. And we even know he faltered in his commitment to the gospel at some point in his life. Maybe you can identify with that as well. Around 46 AD, Mark, he was given the opportunity of a lifetime. He was given the opportunity to take a major leadership role in what God was doing in the New Testament church. Paul and Barnabas, they invited Mark to join their ministry. Uh, the, the kind of the epicenter where God was moving in the early church was shifting from Jerusalem to a place called Antioch. And so Mark was in Jerusalem and they invited him, would you come to Antioch with us and help lead this ministry? And you know what? Mark must have done a good job because Paul then, when he set out to go on his first missionary journey, he invited Mark to come along and be a helper in this ministry. And so, so far in his life, Mark sounds like the next Christian superstar. He's known and respected and admired by all the right people. He's being asked to lead. But not far into his journey, we hear that Mark abandoned the mission and he abandoned his friends and he ran home to mama. He returned home. We read about this in Acts 13. We don't really know exactly why he did this and why he left. But what we do know is the the greatest hardships, the greatest persecutions Paul would face yet happened right after Mark left. And so Mark was the guy who left right before the toughest times. Mark was the guy who bailed just before the going got tough. And so we know he then became a source of conflict even a source of disappointment for his mentors. After more than a year later, Paul made plans to go on a second missionary journey. Bartimaeus suggested, hey, remember my cousin Mark here? Let's, Let's give him another shot. Let's bring him along again. And Paul would have none of it. I'm not bringing the guy who bailed right when things were getting tough. No way. But Barnabas, he's known for giving people second chances. He did the same thing with Paul when the New Testament church wanted nothing to do with Paul, plus, you know, he's family. 
And so this led to a division between Paul and Barnabas. So Paul chooses Silas and goes one direction. Barnabas takes Marks and, and they go off to Cyprus. But that's not the end of the story. See, Mark, he must have understood that a disciple is not defined by his failures. And so he kept going, just kind of one step at a time, continuing to follow the Lord. And as the years unfolded, Mark doesn't step aside in the church history. We find that he, he labors alongside Timothy in Asia Minor. We, uh, several church historians record that Mark begins serving Peter and becomes kind of Peter's right-hand man, his interpreter and his personal assistant. And we read in the book of 1 Peter that Peter actually calls Mark his own son. He affectionately calls him like a, like a son to him. And this time, being with Peter's formative time, this is most likely where Mark got his content to write his gospel was when he's with Peter, long after he'd abandoned Paul. But then this other thing happens in the New Testament. Years later, Paul, who didn't want to bring Mark before, he, he finds himself in prison for the first time, facing hardship, facing persecution. And you know who, who he asked to come to his aid? Mark. Mark. He says, you know what, that, that Mark, he is a comfort to me. He calls Mark a fellow worker in the kingdom of God. And then later on, near the end of Paul's life, Paul's in prison again, but this time he knows his execution is imminent. And he instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. He says, you know what, would you pick up Mark and would you bring him to me? In the most difficult time of his life, he wants Mark there. Somehow, some way, this immature, undependable, young disciple he transformed into this pillar of the church, this son to Peter, this helper to Paul, this comfort to Paul. How? What accounts for this, uh, this transformation? The answer to that we find in the gospel of Mark. See, the lessons that Mark learned along his journey following Jesus saturate the gospel that he writes. Now, here's what's interesting. Most commentators will tell you Mark, the, book, the gospel of Mark, is all about faithful discipleship. And you may say, well, then it's got the wrong author. How can that be? How can the guy who ran home to mommy while Paul and Barnabas were getting stoned, how can he write a book on faithful discipleship? Well, here's how. Because the most important thing about Mark's life was not his failures. But you know what? It wasn't his successes either. No single event defined Mark's life, but Neither did a series of it. No series of events defined Mark's life. Mark is writing his gospel to tell us this, and this is the, the big idea for our sermon today. The most important thing about a disciple is who, who they follow. The most important thing about a disciple is who they follow. So with that in mind, let's begin reading. Let's look at verse 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this gospel is a little different from the others. Mark gets right to it. There's no birth narrative. There's no angels. There's no wise men, no shepherds, no manger. He goes straight to the most important thing about him. Who is this Jesus? Who is this that I am following? We find three things in the passage today. Number one, Jesus is the good news. That's what he calls him, the gospel, the good news. That, that word gospel, it's used to describe the duties of an official messenger 
bringing good news of the kingdom. And so it could be victory in battle. It could be the birth of a new heir. It could be the arrival of a king. And they would shout and proclaim this good news of the kingdom. Now, I had a chance when I was in college to actually experience this type of proclamation. Me and one of my friends, we grew up in North Louisiana. We had a little time there, part of the summer. And so we decided we're going to go just buy a plane ticket to England, and we're going to hike around England and just see what happens. What could go wrong? Just so happens, this other, my friend's name is also Clint. And so it's Clint and Clint go to England. It's like a bad sitcom or something. But here we go. And y'all there, I, we had what I'm convinced is the most British experience anyone has ever had in the history of the earth. We find ourselves on Sunday morning, so we go find some church, some Baptist church. And after church, they have a meal. So, yeah, free food. We're in. And so we go eat. And there we meet this old couple named Bob and Brenda Bryden. Now, you can't make up a more British name than that. Bob and Brenda Bryden. And Bob Bryden, he's a character. He's real gregarious. He's talking to us. And he challenges us. He says, do you know what the highest point in all of England is? And we say, of course we don't. We're from Monroe, Louisiana. We have no idea. Just tell you, you find out, you find out what the highest point in all of England is. You go hike to the highest point, then you call me. As soon as you get done off of it, you call me, and then you can come to my house. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. It'll be great. And we're like, we're in. We got nothing else to do. So we do some research. Uh, we find Scaffold Pike as the highest point of all of England, and we go and we hike it. Turns out, y'all, the highest point in all of England, not that high. Uh, we weren't climbing a mountain. It was more of an afternoon hike. So we go do that. That was easy. Come back down. We call Bob and Brenda Bryden. Yeah, I mean, they come pick us up. They take us to their home. He takes us to play croquet. Uh, they feed us an English breakfast, which, by the way, they eat baked beans and tomatoes for breakfast. So that was super weird. But we, we ate it with a smile on our face. Our mamas taught us good manners. And then he tells us, you know, I don't know if y'all know this. I'm the town crier. I thought, well, that's sad. Does that mean he just like cry? He's sadder than everyone else in town. Is this some new form of therapy? He like cries with me. I don't know what's happening here. And so we're, we're, it's clear we don't know. We're just two rednecks from America. We don't know what's going on. He goes, let me show you. He leaves for like 15 minutes. He comes back dressed in this full medieval garb. He's got a framed certificate that says he is the town crier and he has a bell. He's like from Mississippi State, big old cowbell. And out of nowhere, he just starts ringing this bell and screaming, hear ye, hear ye. And y'all, we're in his house. We're inside. And it's, he's got this booming voice. And so there we sit in this living room, Clint and Clint. We're just looking at each other like, what is happening right now? I have no idea what's happening. And so he, he can tell we clearly still don't understand. So then he explains it to us. So before internet, before phones, before even newspapers, this is how they spread good news. They would find the guy with the loudest voice, they'd give him a bell. He would go in the middle of the town and he would ring this bell and proclaim as loud as he could because they wanted everyone to hear the good news. See, Mark's trying to tell us right off the bat, the gospel isn't a secret. It's not a mystery to be unraveled. It's not this difficult philosophy that the smart people can figure out, but other people can't quite figure out. Mark is standing in the middle of your reality ringing his bell, shouting, making it as clear as he can. The good news, it's a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And that person is here. So he's here. The good news is a person, but what kind of person is he? Who is this Jesus? Well, he says he's the Christ. That's, that means he's the saving Messiah promised hundreds of years ago in the Old Testament. We're told he's the 
Son of God. And you may think, okay, second member of the, tr- the Trinity. And that's true. That, that's a claim of deity. He is the second member of the Trinity. But it is also a covenantal term. He is the Davidic king. He is the anointed, faithful, covenant partner that Israel had been waiting on since the times of David. And he will have a kingdom without end, an everlasting kingdom, we're told. And he shows us this. This is not a surprise. This isn't just happened. This is rooted in prophecy. So he quotes Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 to say that this is the king that has been promised, but now he's here. It's happening. He has arrived. And so he says, through these prophets, we must prepare to greet him. So he says, prepare the way. Make the paths straight. So you see, in ancient times, roads were really bad. I mean, when they first built them, they were bad, and then they deteriorated very, very quickly. Uh, kings, uh, chariots, or whatever they driven didn't have great suspensions either. And so when a king was expected, way ahead of time, construction crews would, would go uh, all the roads to the outside of the city, and they would prepare for this king's arrival. So they would level hills. They would fill in ditches. They would clear debris out. They would remove any obstruction in order to prepare a wide, unencumbered, straight path right into the heart of town. And this work was a way to prepare the city for the coming of the king. Now, it just so happens that God has ordained an experience like this in my life. So today, this very morning, my wife is out of town. Now, normally, when normal life, wife is here, we have a daily cleaning regimen. After dinner, do the dishes, clean up your room, put up laundry. Then my wife goes out of town. And we switch to a different cleaning regimen. It's one that I like to call the panicked last-minute cleaning method. And so while she's gone, the dishes stack up in the sink. Dirty clothes are just on the floor. There's... Cups on every table, every surface. Look, look, Shannon's cringing right now at even the, even the thought, you know. And then my wife, very graciously, when she's about to, she's on her way home, she calls. Because she knows. She knows the state of the house is in while she's gone. And so she calls and says, honey, I'm on my way home. On the phone, I play it very cool. Well, that's wonderful, sweetheart. We can't wait to see you. And as soon as I hit that red button, it is a frantic flurry of activity in my home trying to get cleaned up. Why? Because we've got to prepare the home, prepare the way for the queen to come home. (laughs) Mark is telling you this morning, Jesus is coming. That's not in question. That's happening. This is happening. The question is, are you prepared to receive him? Are you prepared to receive him this morning? Are you willing to be honest about yourself? Are you willing to live for something greater than yourself? Are you willing to admit that maybe, just maybe, you need a Savior? Jesus is the good news. Let's get ready to receive him. He keeps going in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this Jesus, he's the good news. He's also saying Jesus is greater. Jesus 
is greater. And he says that through the words of John the Baptist. Now, we get a very brief summary of the ministry of John the Baptist here. All the details are pointing us to the fact that he is the second Elijah. Elijah was one of Israel's most uh, courageous, one of his most revered prophets. And we are promised in the Old Testament that another, a second Elijah, would come right before the Messiah. And so everything John did, living in the wilderness, the way he dressed, all those details very much match Elijah. And this is Mark telling us, this guy, John, he is the second Elijah. And he tells us that his ministry is a ministry of baptism of repentance. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Baptism of Jews, totally unheard of, totally radical, what John the Baptist is doing right there. Now, Gentiles, when Gentiles converted to Judaism, they were often uh, baptized as a symbolic walk. Uh, a symbolic washing from all their defilement of their past. So, yes, that was true for Gentiles, but Jews didn't need repentance. Jews didn't need to repent and be baptized because they had achievement and genetics. That's what they had. And so, in those days, the message that they would have heard in the temple from the time they were born is that they were worthy of God's kingdom by virtue of Abraham's DNA and following the law. They are genetically pure, and they achieved the law, and that's how they got into the kingdom. That made total sense to them. And yet John is telling these same Jews to do something they had never done before in their history. John is telling them, you are not good enough. You're not good enough. You, Jews, need to repent. And so I find myself reading this this week thinking, how on earth did John become so popular? How? I mean, the picture that Mark paints is people are coming in droves from all the cities out into the wilderness. But they were in the city. The city is much more comfortable. There's much more, it's much more convenient. There's food, there's water, there's shelter in the city. Why would they leave the comforts of the city to come out into the wilderness? And not only that, the message of the temple is so much better, so much easier to hear. That's the seeker-sensitive message. You're a good person. You have the right family. You do all the right things. God's lucky to have you. Listen, if you, if you go out into the wilderness and you go to John, he's going to tell you you're not a good person. He's going to tell you you're sinful, and then he's going to make you confess your sins. Well, that's no fun. And yet, people are coming by the thousands, venturing into the wilderness to repent. Why? How? Because the best day of your life can be the day that you realize Jesus is greater. Greater than who? Greater than you. Greater than me. Greater than everyone else. That's who Mark is trying to point us to. Jesus, because he is greater. And so John says he's greater in worth. He says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. By law back then, you could not ask your household slave to untie your sandals. You've probably heard this also about uh, washing someone's feet. Now, listen, this culture had no value for slaves, but even they had a line in messing with someone's feet. That'll tell you how nasty their feet were back then. Keep in mind who John is. No one has sacrificed more than John. He's eating locusts. Have you ever seen a locust? That's disgusting. He's out in the wilderness. He's important. He had whole prophecies about him. He's, he's the new Elijah. He's popular. He's got all the crowds following him. He, he's the next celebrity pastor. Jesus himself, in Luke 7, Jesus himself says, 
No one better than John. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, no one's greater than John. And yet, even John, the greatest servant of God up to that time, says, you know what? I'm not worthy of Jesus. All of my achievements do not qualify me to do even the lowest, most menial form of service. That's how much greater than you, that he is than me. He also said he's greater in power. So he says, I can baptize you with water, but he can baptize you with the Spirit. So the, John's saying the best I can do is give you an external symbol. I can get you wet. That's all I can do. But Jesus, he gives you the internal reality. He can change your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, all throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is a new covenant promise. When this Messiah comes, he would bring the new covenant, and he would give us the Holy Spirit. And it says things like the Spirit, it will have the power to do what the law and what we ourselves cannot do. We're powerless to do. So it says things like he'll write God's words on our hearts internally, not just on tablets of stone out there, internally. Jeremiah says this Holy Spirit, he will cure what he calls our incurable wound. See, we don't just need more information. We don't just need to know the law. We don't have the power to follow the law. And Jeremiah points us out, we, we got all the rules, we got all the law, and we're no better at keeping them than we were that day in the garden. We've got this incurable wound, but the power of the Holy Spirit can cure that incurable wound. Ezekiel said, takes him out to that valley of dry bones and says, this Holy Spirit, he will give life to dim bones, dim bones, dim dry bones, as I learned in vacation Bible school. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. You see, men and women, in any ministry that we participate in, that we help lead, that we join into, we must remember where the power comes from. The most important thing about a ministry isn't the disciple doing that ministry, not their abilities, not their talent, not their devotion. It's who that disciple is following. Because Jesus is the one that can transform hearts. He is the one that can forgive our sins. We can get people wet. We're going to get some people wet here in February. It's going to be great. We can play some music. We heard some great music earlier today. We can give generously to people. We can, we can teach people Bible stories. We, we did a lot of that today, and, and that's good. We should do that. But Jesus is the one that can change hearts. We're powerless to do that on our own, and he alone can forgive sinners. So Mark wants us to know Jesus is greater than all of us. And when you realize that, you know the most important thing about me actually isn't me. The most important thing about me is who I follow. He is greater. So Jesus, he's the good news. Jesus is greater. Finally, Mark wants you to know that Jesus is your substitute. He's your substitute. Let's keep reading in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, this Jesus who is God, who is greater, what on earth is this Jesus doing getting baptized in a baptism of repentance? Jesus doesn't need to repent. He's perfect. So what is he doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He is representing you. That's what he's doing. He is succeeding 
where we fail. See, all the ways that we're supposed to be obedient but fail, he will do and he will succeed. All the ways that we're supposed to walk in the spirit but we trip and stumble along, he will do perfectly. He will do everything we were supposed to do, yet in his baptism, this Jesus, this one who is greater, is associating himself with sinners. And he is placing himself among the guilty, not for his own salvation, but for ours. Not for his guilt, but for ours. Not because he feared the wrath to come, but because of the wrath that is ours. And then we see the Trinity show up. The Father is there, the Holy Spirit, the whole Godhead is there in love and pleasure for what Jesus is doing. All three persons together, simultaneously, in perfect relationship. Now, what would you expect when that happens? How about a party? A great party. Look at what Jesus has done. The Trinity there. God is so pleased with Jesus. How about the best worship service ever? Trinity's there. Angels come. Maybe, maybe Chris Tomlin shows up. I don't know. We have the best worship service we've ever seen. Maybe a display of the might of God. The mountains shake. The wind howls. That's not what we get. Verse 12, instead, in this powerful moment, right afterwards, it says immediately, Jesus is sent into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. Now, what is this Jesus who is perfect, who God has just said, I love him so much, I'm so happy with him, I'm so pleased with him. What is he doing being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days? I'll tell you what he's doing. He is representing you. That's what he's doing. We're told he's led by the Spirit, so he didn't wander out there. Satan didn't reel him out there. He, he didn't even decide on his own. That The word there means compelled, driven out. He is cast out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. See, in everything Jesus does, he is submitted to the will of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you and I are supposed to do, but we don't. He does, though. He will succeed where we fail. And this time frame, this time frame of 40 days, is a reminder of our repeated failure of our repeated lack of faith. It shows up over and over again in the Old Testament. You've probably read the story of Noah. We find out that man's heart is all, only evil all the time. And as judgment, it rains for 40 days. The Israelite spies, when they were trying to go into the promised land, they took 40 days to spy out the land. And then they responded in fear and in faithlessness. The Israelites wandered for 40 years in the wilderness trying to get to the promised land, but they were too stiff-necked, so much so that even Moses himself was not allowed into the promised land. We're told in 1 Samuel that Goliath taunted the armies of Israel for 40 days before David showed up. And they were all too afraid to do anything about it. When Elijah, when he flees from Jezebel, he travels for 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, he just falls down into despair and self-pity. Now, these are some, some great men. You and I would not have fared, fared any better. But Jesus is going to succeed as our substitute. He'll do it for us. He will emerge after those 40 days faithful, obedient. We're told that he's tempted by Satan and threatened by wild animals. Now, this is supposed to take us straight to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan in the form of a wild animal. We all know how that went. That didn't go great. And once again, we're supposed to realize, we're supposed to understand, you know what? You and I, we would have not done any better. In fact, from that time, all we have done is add to Adam and Eve's sin. 
But Jesus succeeds as your substitute. He withstands the worst Satan has to throw at him. And that's why if you, are, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the most important thing about you had better be who you follow. Because if you are counting on yourself, we've got a long line of great people who fail to show us, to prove to us, you will fail on your own. But you don't have to. You can count on a substitute. And here's what Mark is saying. The substitute is way better, way better. It'd be like me saying, hey, guys, you know, I'm sick. I can't preach today. So I found a fill-in. I found a substitute. Billy Graham is going to come preach this morning. Y'all be like, Clint, don't hurry back, okay? Take your time. You don't want to rush back into it and overdo it. Just get the feeling better, okay? The substitute's way better. Martin Luther, when he was asked how he overcame the devil, he replied, well, when that devil comes knocking on the door of my heart and asks who lives here, the dear Lord Jesus answers the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out. Now I live here. Men and women, our, our whole faith is wrapped up in the word substitution. Jesus has moved into your house. And because Jesus is our substitute, succeeding where we all fail, we can say, most important thing about me is not me. The most important thing about me is who I follow. You know, reading this passage this week, I, I couldn't help but picture Mark as he's sitting down to write these words and write this gospel. Up to this point, no, nobody knows the gospel of Mark. It's, it's in process. At this point, he was most famous for his greatest failure, for the time he abandoned Paul uh, and Barnabas. You know what? Our world loves to define people by their greatest failures, don't we? It's like, it's like the new American pastime. We love it. But Mark is telling you, you are not defined by your greatest failures. You don't have to edit your story and pretty it up to be a good Christian, to follow Christ. See, and Mark, we're going to see this over and over. He fills his gospel with story after story of the disciples failing. And here's what's interesting about that. Mark wasn't there. He wasn't there when those things happened. So how did he know about all of these disciples' failures? They had to have told him. They had to relive and retell him all the times they met. Yeah, we were in the boat, and we just knew we were going to drown. Jesus over there sleeping. We were so mad at him. One of them had to say, yeah, well, I told a dad whose daughter had just died that he was annoying us, and he needed to scram. And then at some point, Peter chimes in and is like, well, Jesus called me Satan, so I think I got y'all beat. And Mark records it all because he wants to show you that the most important thing about you isn't what you have done. It is who you are following. So he introduces you to Jesus, the one who's the good news, the one who is greater, the one who is your substitute. And he is writing this gospel to invite you to follow him. There's a verse in, later on in Mark that I'm going to ask us all to memorize this spring. It's a short verse. It's an easy verse. So all the kids, we can all do it. Every age group can do it. Many of you, it'll be familiar to you. And so maybe you're way ahead of us. You've memorized that. That's great. It's this, Mark 10, 45. This is the, the key verse of the book, one that summarizes what Mark wants us to know about Jesus. Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. This verse tells us who Jesus is. He is the, the son of man. He is greater. He is God, and it tells us what he has done. He's our substitute. He gave his life for ours, and that is good news. So here's what I challenge you to do in the, in the weeks of hand, ahead. Learn it, learn it as a couple. Learn it as a family. Uh, repeat it at dinner. Put it on your phone. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Remind yourself of it on a daily basis. Tell yourself this verse. Pray this verse over and over and over again until not you just have it memorized until it seeps down into your bones. Until you know deep in your heart, that's the most important thing about me. That right there. That is who Jesus is. And that is the most important thing about me. Up until it dictates the decisions we make, till it dictates how we raise our kids and how we treat people and how generous we are with people, till it dictates what we put on our calendars and how we spend our money, till it dictates how we handle, like Mark, how we handle our failures. That's the most important thing about me. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The most important thing about a disciple, men and women, is who they follow. And if that's true, then let's follow Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.